Sean. And I'm Eds. We're doing baseball. Did I catch right. you off guard a bit there? Oh, you did catch me off guard a bit. I was like, I'm going to slowly jump back open to the my microphone. water bottle and he's pointing at me. It's go time. <laughs> it's go time. Uh, we are a uh, bi-weekly baseball history podcast where uh, two friends share tales from baseball history. And the other one doesn't know what the story is yeah. going to be about. And I'm that lucky guy this week. So Edzie will be sharing a story. I have no idea. If you tuned in last week, uh, you heard the story of Major League. Yes, thank you for that story. That, that was, was a great a, story. That was just I had a fun. lot of fun. I had no confidence in myself going into that and had a really good time. So thank that you. Was, that was great. Oh, all right. Well, I'm sure you have something just as great. Uh, speaking of great, follow us. I don't know us. if it's going to create as much discussion, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball. Or on Instagram at doing dot baseball. Doing dot baseball. Uh, give us a like or a review, a follow, a follow whatever the heck you want to do. Uh, that would be fantastic. Uh, do the same on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, please. Too leave yeah. us a review if you can. Hundred uh, percent true, true, and we like to to help out our friends too. Yes. Uh, so what are we saying? Well, our buddy JP, good buddy. Uh, he's good great. buddy. He's he's, he's great. great. I don't know. Good buddy. He's just a good He is buddy. a good person. He's a good person. And he was on our uh, Ed Delahanty and the Baseball Project episode. And right now I just want to encourage people to go and follow his new uh, video podcast, morning show kind of thing. It's Fridays at uh, 10 a.m. Pacific at 1 p.m. Eastern for us people. You can, If you're a Twitch person, you can get it on Twitch. Uh, I believe his, uh, handle, I should have researched this more. I believe his handle on Twitch is at the young Pope and, uh, on Twitter, you can follow at JP underscore SRB. And, uh, yeah, but the morning after is a show that he just every morning, uh, him and his buddy, Joe get on the zoom chat, have a little conversation. You know, it's about an hour long. Uh, you know, they talk about anything. You know, anything I, I like everything. It. Yeah, anything. It's the everything. morning after, right? You're just, you're That's just, right. You're just going through what happened. Yeah, uh, it's a great, it's a great show. Definitely tune into that. Uh, fantastic show. Fantastic person. Uh, give him a follow. Give him a like. Yeah, help him out. All right. Are you ready? Yeah. You ready for the story? Yes. Okay. Very much. Okay. Henry Benjamin Greenberg who would later be known throughout baseball as Hammer and Hank, was born on January 1st, 1911 in Greenwich Village, New York City. Fantastic. Okay, and I wanted to mention one more thing before I get too into this story. I just want to say today is uh, September 16th, uh-huh. or approximately. Uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are coming up. Uh-huh. So, And that kind of comes into play with the story of Hank Greenberg, who was one of the first big Jewish stars of Major League Baseball. Fantastic. And I want to just say, did you mean Greenwich Village or Greenwich? Greenwich? There's a Greenwich Village. Okay, is it Greenwich, as in, like, is it pronounced Greenwich? Green, G-R-E-E-N-W-I-C-H? 
Uh, is that Greenwich or uh, Greenwich? I don't know. We're getting like into debate, like into the first fucking sentence. Yeah. Well, let's see how it is here. Uh, Greenwich Village. Uh, I don't know. It's Greenwich. It looks like Greenwich. I'm looking for the pronunciation here. I don't think it really comes into play. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, his parents were both Jewish immigrants from Romania. David Greenberg and Sarah Schwartz met in America and married in 1906. Okay, it's Greenwich. Greenwich. Okay, <laughs> Greenwich Village. They had four children. First, Ben. Mm-hmm. Then a sister, Lillian. Henry came third. And finally, Joe, the youngest brother. Uh, Henry was originally supposed to be named Hyman, but the man fi- filling out his birth certificate had apparently never heard such a name. <laughs> he was supposed to be named Hyman? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, that's a name. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, it took yeah. me a second. Yeah. But yeah. This guy had never like, heard of nope, that name. Never nope, heard of never that. heard of that. Not Vir- happening. Virgin. <laughs> the family owned a successful cloth shrinking plant in New York and moved to the Bronx when Hank was about seven. So it's 1913, and the Greenbergs are moving on up. Mm-hmm. Uh, these more spacious livings quarters and... Sorry, these are more spacious living quarters, and they're across the street from Cretona Park, which were the municipal baseball fields of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Greenberg spent hours hitting balls in the park while neighborhood kids shagged the flies for him. It was in these hours. That's like really one-sided. I'll hit. You guys get the balls. (laughs) Well, it, it, it paid off. (laughs) <laughs> just, I just want to know who these other kids were. They're like, sure, Hank, you're the best. Well, his, Hank was a big boy. Okay. So, um, yeah. It was in these hours that Greenberg fell in love with the game that would make up his livelihood. Attending high school at James Monroe High, Henry was a multi-sports star and was bestowed the long-standing nickname of Bruggy. By his, bas- by his basketball coach. Is he having his stroke and gave him a nickname? I don't know what that means. <laughs> hey, hey, bro- hey Bruggy. Bruggy. <laughs> call an ambulance. <laughs> yeah, we're going to call you Bruggy now. <laughs> that was Coach Kim's last words. <laughs> it was his dying wish. <laughs> the Yankees, along with the Pittsburgh Pirates and Washington Senators, watched the young prospect very closely. Hank caught the eye of Yankee scout Paul Critchell, who attempted to woo him by bringing him to a game at the stadium. Greenberg marveled at the power of Lou Gehrig from his front row box seat, but the scout leaned over to tell the teenager, quote, he's all washed up. In a few years, you'll be the Yankees' first baseman. Greenberg signed a deal with Detroit in September of 19, in September of 1929. No, I will not. Yeah. The Tigers had scout Jean Dubuque to thank. Uh, when Hank joined the professional ranks for the season of 1930, he was the youngest of all affiliated players at just 19 years old. Greenberg's first year was with the Rally Capitals of the Class C Piedmont League. Greenberg had a very good season in Class C ball, hitting 314 with 19 homers in 122 games as a first baseman. He also spent part of the summer with the Hartford Senators of the Class A Eastern League getting into 17 games. Meanwhile, the Tigers wanted to get a look at the powerful kid and called Greenberg up for the season's final three weeks. He got into one game on September 14th at Navin Field against the Yankees, popping up to second base. But he made it all the way in like one year. Yeah. 
That's fantastic. That's so he's rising through the ranks pretty quickly on top of his game. Yeah. On top of the world. He's doing great. Well. Well. The first year of Greenberg was a lonely one. Uh, he was a victim of Jew baiting, even from some of his own teammates. One afternoon during batting practice, pitcher Phil Page reportedly called Greenberg a, quote, goddamn Jew after Greenberg had lined a pitch that struck Page in the knee. Yeah, that's not what you say. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> but other teammates like Schoolboy Rowe and Billy Rogel were an encouragement to the youngster, quote, go out and outplay the bastards, Rogel told him. So they're just like, oh, so basically they, they, he probably is getting the impression based on a manager saying that, that they don't like him because he's Jewish. Right. And they're just like, ah, fuck him. Yeah. Just be so good that they can't hate you for it. Yeah. That's awesome. Be undeniable. All right. But yeah. And it, it should be mentioned too that he's, he's playing in Detroit, which at the time was like a known kind of hotbed for anti-Semitism. Cause yeah, it's a weird move. He was ready to, the Yankees wanted him. Mm-hmm. And then he mm-hmm. just, yeah. And that's it, home. I'll get to it, but it sounds like he wasn't like too conscious of like those kind of goings on or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, but, that's, that's, I mean, that, that brings also like a whole perspective. What, what, what year would this be? Like the 19... 19- this was 1930. Yeah. No, so like my, on my, yeah, so I have like a, Bubby and Zeta, my cousins are are, are Jewish, and they have mm-hmm. their, and they were like a grandparent to me too, and they mm-hmm. were from Detroit. Right. So I mean, that's a that's mm-hmm. a whole other level of of realism, realizing what people <laughs> yeah, were going that, through. Yeah, that's yeah. It. So the Midwest in the 1930s generally not fun. If mm-hmm. you're even like any well anybody would have, but yeah, no, just. Uh, not good for racism. And right, the whole right. world in the 1930s, really no. bad. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and even now. Even but, now, uh, you know, really like, bad with you know, the racism. Um, um, yeah, so as I was saying, Detroit was kind of known for that because like Henry Ford was like an outspoken mm-hmm. anti-Semite. Yes, and there definitely. was also, I forget the guy's name, I should have looked it up, but there was uh, a radio announcer that was also like outwardly... Anti-Semitic. Yeah, yeah. like prejudice was mainstream Mm -hmm. at this time anyway um so back to baseball in 1931 he played at evansville for the hubs in the triple i league uh in 1932 at beaumont for the explore exporters in the texas league he hit 39 homers with 131 rbis won the mvp award and led beaumont to the texas league title so why isn't he on the tigers because he's in their minor league system. Yeah, I get it, but he's raking, and he already got, like, a one shot at the Tigers. Like, come on. Like, he popped out. Call him up. He popped out, <laughs> it said, though. I don't care though. he popped out. I don't care. He just I popped out. He, anyways, continue. That's, the, I'm, that's what they were saying. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, solid seasons for Evansville. Maybe they didn't have space for him. Maybe. Uh, and Beaumont led to Greenberg's finally making the Tigers for good in 1933. Under manager Bucky Harris, Detroit sputtered along at 75 and 79, good for fifth place in the AL. Greenberg's first big league home run came in Detroit off Washington's Earl Whitehill on May 6th. He was beginning to find a consistent stroke, hitting 301 with 12 home runs and 87 RBIs. He was also filling out physically at 6 feet 4 and 215 pounds of solid steel and sex appeal. <laughs> Did, is that was that on that's Wikipedia? That's a quote that was on the internet. Oh. Yeah. No, I wrote. That. <laughs> I don't 
know what's funnier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Try to sex it up, you know? <laughs> the next season, 1934, was Greenberg's and the Tigers' breakthrough season. Under new player manager, Mickey Cochran, Detroit won its first American League pennant since 1909. Greenberg, with a league-topping 63 doubles, 26 home runs, 139 RBIs, and a 339 batting average, was now a feared slugger in a lineup that also featured Charlie Geringer and Goose Gosselin. That year, Greenberg was first faced with the dilemma of whether or not to play on Rosh Hashanah, which fell on September 10th. In the past, Greenberg had never hesitated to play baseball on the Sabbath, but the high holy days were another matter. As the calendar year turned to September 1934, the Tigers were in first place, but could feel the Yankees breathing down their necks. Many fans wanted Greenberg to make an exception and play on Rosh Hashanah. Fans grumbled, quote, Rosh Hashanah comes every year, but the Tigers haven't won the pennant since 1909. They got a point. <laughs> I mean, they, they do have a point. Yeah. It's just whether that they, they shouldn't. Yeah, it's they got nothing to do with yeah, yeah, yeah. Hank's decision. <laughs> you don't get input here, yeah. but I mean, they're... they're uh... <laughs> I mean, he's fan. never considered it before. Right, right. But maybe it's never happened before, but, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Uh, Greenberg did considerable soul-searching and discussed the matter with his rabbi. Finally, he relented and agreed to play on Rosh Hashanah. It was one of the defining moments of his career as he homered twice, helping the Tigers win 2-1. Two, two solo shots. Nice. Ten days later, with the pennant all but wrapped up, Greenberg declined to play on Yom Kippur. The popular, nationally syndicated newspaper poet Edgar Guest penned an ode to Greenberg, ending with the lines, quote, We shall miss him on the infield and shall miss him at the bat, but he's true to his religion, and I honor him for that. Oh, good. I thought it was going to be much more terrible. No. I thought you were going in the opposite direction there. That's very nice. No, it was very nice. Nice poem. Yeah. Greenberg was the first to admit that he never strongly identified himself as a Jew, but every day opposing bench jockeys and a certain element of abusive fans never let him forget his Jewishness. Quote, sure, there was added pressure being Jewish, he recalled. How the hell could you get up to home plate every day and have some son of a bitch call you a Jew bastard and a kike and a sheenie and get, your, get on your ass without feeling the pressure? If the ball players weren't doing it, the fans were. I used to get frustrated as hell. Sometimes I wanted to go up in the stands and beat the shit out of them. That's nice. That's nice. That's, that's nice. a nice. Uh, that's understandably so. Yeah. Hank. A hundred percent. Right. Fucking. That's terrible. That's awful. <laughs> yeah. In the World Series, the Tigers squared off against the St. Louis Cardinals. It was a tough series for Detroit, as they fell in seven games. Greenberg, however, boasted solid numbers with nine hits, one home run, seven RBIs, and a three twenty one average. With equal parts, power at the plate, and a crowd appeal at the gate, Greenberg was one of the biggest sports stars in Detroit, in spite of all he had to endure. Affectionate nicknames abounded, Greeny, King Kong, the Big Moose, Lanky, Baseball was experiencing a resurgence in the Motor City, and Greenberg was leading the way. Thanks. Yeah. What year is this again? 1934. Nice. 
So we're rolling around to 35 now. In 35, Greenberg led the league in RBIs, total bases, and extra base hits, tied Jimmy Fox for the AL title in home runs, and was second in the league in runs scored. He was unanimous, unanimously voted the American League's most valuable player. By the All-Star break that season, Greenberg hit 25 home runs and set an MLB record still standing of 103 RBIs. By the All-Star break. By the All-Star break. Yeah. I was waiting. I was like, wait, did I hear that right? Yeah, by the All-Star by break, the All- Greenberg hit 25 home runs and 103 RBIs. I mean, I think the 25 home runs has been broken, but I don't know yeah. if that 103 RBIs is ever going to be broken. But was not selected to the AL All-Star <laughs> roster as both managers put themselves on the rosters but did not play. What? I guess there were player managers back then. That's so fucking stupid. That's so stupid. I don't know why they wouldn't just like be like, no, there's two, there's an extra spot. That's, ugh. The Tigers finally won their first World Series in 1935, although they did it without the services of their star first be- baseman, as Greenberg had injured his wrist sliding into home plate in game two of the series and played no more. Well, first of all, I want to say you were going in the right direction. He deserves to be called the first beastman. <laughs> the this, first beastman. At this point, okay. at this point, right? And that's too bad. <laughs> right. You shouldn't have corrected. You should have leaned into the that one. First beastman. <laughs> <laughs> Carrying on, Ruth. That comes up again. Uh, Detroit overcame the loss, however, and defeated the Cubs in six games. Any chances? The Tigers had of reaching the World Series again in 1936 went down when Greenberg re-injured his wrist in a collision with Jake Powell of the Washington Senators early in the season, and Cochran, player coach or player manager, the heart and soul of the club, suffered a nervous breakdown. <laughs> wait, wait. So Greenberg hurts himself. Yeah, and then Cochran has a nervous breakdown. Oh. So the whole season falls apart for the Tigers. That's a, that's that's pretty. That's what I guess what happens when management breaks down. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Yeah. <laughs> but Greenberg had a fine comeback in 1937 as he banged 40 home runs and knocked in 183 runs, coming within two of Lou two of Lou Gehrig's American League mark of 185. I was gonna say 183 is you know, RBI is like. Obviously, he has a lot of talent playing on this team as well right. with him. Right, Since and that makes are, a difference. Yeah, no, 100%. RBIs today are not what they were back then, but holy shit. Like, that is... That's still... That's that's one that stands out. That is... You know? I mean, I can't believe somebody had more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 1938, however, that truly put Greenberg in the national consciousness. All summer long, he chased Babe Ruth's single-season home run record of 60. According to a New York Times article from May 2010, quote, It is impossible to know what was in the pitcher's hearts, but it is also impossible to ignore the statistical record. In short, the American League didn't seem exactly thrilled with Greenberg's pursuit. Greenberg received many more walks as he chased Ruth in 1938 than he did in the rest of his career. He had 119 walks to lead the AL, the only time he did so, and they accounted for 17.5% of his 681 plate appearances. Greenberg had four three-walk games in the final two months of the 1938 season. That's got to be frustrating. Yeah, three of them in September. Wow. Yeah. Uh, by comparison, he had no three-walk games in 1937 when he drove in 183 runs, 
1935 when he won his MVP award, and three in 1940, his second MVP year. Overall, Greenberg walked in 15.9% of his plate appearances through the end of August 1938. That's pretty good. That's not, like, huge, but that's very good. Yeah. In September, that rate jumped to 20.4%. Okay, now we're getting... I was going to say, once you get into the 20s, then then you're talking of, like, a huge walk percentage. Yeah. His walk rate was 14.5% in 1937 and 15% in 1939. Ah. Uh, Greenberg's treatment stands stands in contrast to the other single-season record challengers. In 1932, Jimmy Fox also finished with 58 home runs. Fox walked in 16.6% of his plate appearances that season. That September, his walk rate was 17.1%. So, so you're thinking they, they were walking him on purpose? That's what the article is kind of implying. Well, I mean, it, it to a certain extent. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's a... Fairly large. We'll explore difference. it. We'll yeah, explore yeah, yeah. it. Okay, continue. Roger Maris had a season-long walk rate of thirteen point four percent in nineteen sixty-one, the year he hit sixty-one home runs to break Roos' record. That September, Maris walked in only twelve point two percent of his plate appearances. So his his stayed pretty consistent. His went down. Well, yeah, but I yeah. mean, still, like but it's still, within a percentage, yeah. right? Yeah. That that's not a big. Uh, yeah, it's point eight. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's 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 not a big either way. You wouldn't if 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 Greenberg's was only point eight higher, it wouldn't be as big a deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was like what was it like four five percent higher? Yeah, it was uh, somewhere in between there. Four. Four point five percent higher. Yeah, yeah, so right in the middle yeah. there. So yeah, that's that's a fairly surmountable yeah. difference. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it more. Okay, all right. We'll see. Uh, in 1998, when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa took aim at Maris's mark, their walk rates held steady late in the season. McGuire walked in 23.8% of his plate appearances from August 1st through September 8th. When he passed Maris, he walked 24.1% of the time. Sosa, a free swinger, walked 10.1% of the time in 1998. From August 1st on, that number was 11.2%. From September 1st on, 10.4%. So, so he's in the, in, no in real the change range. there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, only Greenberg, among all these would-be home run kings, had a significant increase in his walk rate. One player with a comparable spike in walks while in pursuit of the single-season home run mark was Barry Bonds in 2001. Uh, Bonds walked in 26.7% of his plate appearances that season, but 33.6% after September 1st. Well, yeah. I almost remember that year. Yeah. But, like, you know, I'll get to it in a second. But, like, so so that's the. But that's still pretty. He's still a big. Him and Bonds are the big outliers, and it's not like they're, uh, Mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're a pretty small percentage of this group. Right, right. Yeah, and like, you know, the famous story tied to this season is that it was fueled by, you know, anti-Semitism. Pitchers pitch around Greenberg to prevent him from reaching the heights of the babe. Yeah. You know, and like this New York Times article seems to imply that at least there was like some funny business. But like, you know, it it doesn't really 
say it's anti-Semitism per se. Like, it's just, you know, it could be just to protect the legacy of Babe Ruth or whatever. Yeah, well, that's often how racism is cloaked, though, right? Like, yeah, that's it, true that as is, well. That, yeah. is how, that is how that works. But, I mean, it's... It, 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 it's one of those things that like you could never prove it. Like it's mm-hmm. almost not even worth arguing. Yeah, about and that's why like the f- because it is. It's just like well, well, maybe they were pitching around him because he was hitting so many home runs. So it's just like, but then we have evidence that these guys like mm-hmm. it is. It, I mean, it is something to talk about, but it's just like you'll never be able to prove it. Right. Right. <laughs> However, there is data from the hardball times uh-huh. that show that even these facts are prejudiced. Oh, okay. So a five percent increase in walk percentage sounds like a convincing stat. Yeah, you got me. But when Greenberg's walk rates for April to August uh-huh. and for September to October uh-huh. against each opposing team individually, it shows a different story. Okay, so if you like, you you the people listening can't see this chart, but like yeah. if you see like the breakdown yeah. between this is like the difference. So like there's there's a range yeah, yeah, that yeah. they all fall into, right? Okay, so, all right, I see. So it. the St. Louis Browns were the only team against which Greenberg had a noticeably higher walk rate. St. Louis. Yeah. In <laughs> in the period that the article the New York Times article was was examining. Yeah. Every other team was in the symmetrical range of plus 0.12 to minus 0.13 and the difference indicating that the rest of the American League pitched Greenberg similarly both before and during September the Browns were responsible for two of Greenberg's three walk games oh okay so, so it's really just what they're saying is like everyone else was still pitching them generally the same it was just this St. Louis Browns team was just notoriously out of control oh they just suck. they right, just yeah, suck. that makes sense, that so, makes sense. Um, yeah it implies that the Browns as a team were not employing an anti-semitic strategy of pitching around Greenberg rather the two three walk games just seemed to be a manifestation of the Browns pitchers horrific control uh, the Browns led the league with 737 walks uh, 56 more than the team with the next worst control, the Indians, uh, and 121 walks more than the league average. Hmm. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Well, that I I love that it's just like you're you're building the stats, and then you got the other stats to mm-hmm. <laughs> undo like go the back first the other stats. Way. Yeah. yeah. It's a pendulum of, of thrill. And it should be mentioned that, like, the last... I'm going to talk about it here, but the last five games of the season were against those two teams. Okay, so... So, yeah. It just happened. And, obviously, when pitchers have bad control, it gets worse against better hitters. Mm-hmm. Like, because normally that means you're... You're you know, thinking. You're thinking too much. Yeah. After the September 27th doubleheader, Greenberg was in the hail- was in the hailing distance of Roos record. At this point, he needed three home runs with two more home games against the Browns and a three-game series in Cleveland to close the season. Uh, That is against the staffs with the worst control in the league. So on September 28th against the Browns, he had two walks. Uh, On the 29th, he had no walks. On October 1st against Cleveland, he had zero walks. And then he had two walks in two games in the doubleheader. Okay. So like one each. One each. Uh, So... You know, just anyway, uh, no home runs, 
didn't reach it. The pressure had been mounting, and Greenberg was both physically and mentally spent. He didn't hit another home run, finishing at 58. Yep. The final game of the season was played in Cleveland's cavernous municipal stadium. He almost hit one out, but instead it banged off the fence in a faraway left center field. As twilight set in, umpire George Moriarty reluctantly called the game because of darkness. Turning to Hank, he said, quote, I'm sorry, Hank. This is as far as I can go. An exhausted Greenberg replied, quote, That's all right, George. This is as far as I can go, too. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's like just... just. He's just like, whatever. Just amazingly written. Yeah. But actually in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh that's I love that they well I guess they just didn't have the lights set up there where this is late thirties yeah I guess yeah. not every yeah. stadium is all no I set think up with I feel lights. like at this time it might have been only like the Negro leagues that were having their transportable lights yeah 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 hundred yeah. percent another episode yeah uh, uh, Greenberg th- thrived despite the raging anti-Semitism that surrounded him at the times quote it was nineteen thirty eight and I was now making good as a ball player. Nobody expected war, least of all the ballplayers. I didn't pay much attention to Hitler at first or any of the political goings-on at the time. That's what I mean when I was saying he signed in Detroit. Maybe he didn't realize. Maybe he didn't realize. Well, yeah, that's the... uh, I love the quote. Like, obviously, it's super serious with a Jewish person, like, going through the rise of Hitler in the world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just like, especially the ballplayers. We had no idea what Mm -hmm. was going on. (laughs) We were just ballplayers. He continues, I was too stupid to read the front pages, and I just went ahead and played. Of course, as time went by, I came to feel that if I, as a Jew, hit a home run, I was hitting one against Hitler. Hitler probably had a shitty arm. Probably, (laughs) yeah. Another fine season ensued in 1939, and despite a switch to the outfield, Greenberg continued to put up spectacular numbers in 1940, Detroit reached the World Series again, falling in seven games, this time to the Reds. Greenberg slugged 41 home runs and drove in 150 runs and batted 340 for the year. Wow. Yeah, still killing it. On October 16th, 1940, Greenberg became the first American League player to register for the nation's first peacetime draft. In that spring of 1941, the Detroit Draft Board initially classified Greenberg as... 4F for flat feet after his physical for military service and was recommended for light duties. The rumors that he had bribed the board and concerned that he would be likened to Jack Dempsey, who had received negative publicity for failure to serve in World War I, led Greenberg to request to be re-examined. On April 18th... Look at my feet again, please. Yeah. Look, look how, at my feet. Look how curved they are. Look how arched they are. They're arched. Look yeah. at that. Look at me. <laughs> Get out the measuring curve. I've been I curving my feet you, all night. I've been what would they measure that soaking way? Soaking them in boiling water and bending them. Have you ever seen flat feet? I, I mean, I guess like... I, I, what do they look like? I think it's just... If you have flat feet, send us a picture. <laughs> We're going to get way too many pictures yeah. of feet. <laughs> We're going to feet pick. No. Uh, okay. My feet are arched. Look at my feet. That's, I'm not talking about your okay. feet. We're talking about Hank Greenberg's right, feet. <laughs> so uh, look at his feet again. April 18th, he got his feet looked at again. He was found fit for regular military service and was reclassified. <laughs> I got feet are fine. Yeah, my feet are curved. In fact, that guy, the doctor enough. actually yeah. needs glasses. <laughs> He's getting out of duty now. <laughs> Anyways, that's uh, stupid. Horrible. 
horrible joke. <laughs> Finally told that he would have to report for duty on May 7, 1941, Greenberg began the season with Detroit. In his final game before entering the service, he rose to the occasion by slamming two home runs as the Tigers beat New York 7-4 at the recently renamed Briggs Stadium on May 6th. The next day, he was inducted into the U.S. Army after playing left field in 19 games and reported to Fort Custer at Battle Creek, Michigan. His salary was cut from 55000 a year to $21 a month. It's a pretty big cut. Sounds about right. Yeah. He was not bitter and stated, quote, I made up my mind to go when I was called. My country comes first. In November, while serving as an anti-tank gunner, he was promoted to sergeant but was honorably discharged on December 5th, your birthday. Yay! The United States Congress released men aged 28 years and older from the service. Oh. So that's why. They were kicking themselves about that a couple years later. Yeah. (laughs) Why is that? (laughs) He headed home to Detroit to begin getting ready for the 1942 season. But things changed only a couple of days later. Okay. On December 7th, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, oh yeah, that happened. Greenberg decided his country still needed him and enlisted in the Air Corps. Within all the uncertainty in the world, he wasn't sure when he would ever put on a big league uniform again. "Quote: We are in trouble, and there is only one thing to do: return to service." He said, "I have not been called back. I'm going back on my own accord. Baseball is out the window as far as I'm concerned. I don't know if I'll ever return to baseball." Dutiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greenberg was sent to officer candidate school and commissioned as a first lieutenant on graduation. In February 1944, he was sent to U.S. Army Special Services School, promoted to captain. He requested overseas duty later that year and served in the China-Burma-India Theater for over six months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, scouting locations for B-29 bomber bases and was a physical training officer with the 58th Bomber Wing. He was a special services officer of the 20th Bomber Command, 20th Air Force in China, when it began bombing Japan on June 15th. He was ordered to New York and in late 1944 to Richmond, Virginia. Greenberg served 47 months, the longest of any major league player. He reserved his discharge again on June 14th, 1945. So he almost served out the whole fucking thing. He basically did. Yeah. Like he and and more, yeah. Like because he was in the army before. Like well, technically, I mean, we all know World War Two was going on, mm-hmm. but he was yeah, he was released, and then Pearl Harbor happened. Wow, that was I I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, uh, for Greenberg, his time spent defending his country in World War Two was life changing. By the time he returned to the states, he realized that there were more important things in life than baseball. He had matured as a man. Quote. It was a long hitch, and it was a wonderful experience, he wrote later. I can't say it was enjoyable insofar as we were deprived of our liberties, but considering that so many men had suffered much greater hardships than I had, and quite a few of them had lost their lives, I guess I was just lucky to come back in one piece. Mm-hmm. Grateful. That is a, that's an interesting quote. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot Hank yeah still he wasn't through playing yet he rejoined a Tigers team that was in first place battling for the pennant with the Yankees in its first game back 
on July 1st, 1945, before a capacity crowd at Briggs Stadium, he hit a home run to cap a 9-5 Tigers win against Philadelphia. Like, dude's just, like, an heir for the dramatic, you know? Like, just knows when to hit a ding-dong. Absolutely. seems to do it often. Uh, Greenberg's signature moment as a Tiger, however, came on September 30th, the final contest of the 1945 campaign when he hit a ninth-inning Grand Slam in the rain at Sportsman's Park in St. Louis to win the pennant for Detroit. Holy shit. Rounding the bases, even Greenberg couldn't believe it. Quote, I wasn't sure whether I was awake or dreaming. That's uh, that's That's a a dream. That's a moment. I mean, that's, that's a dream moment, dude. That's like that's like up there. That's like, like dude, a ninth I, inning grand slam to win the pennant. No, I know. That's what I'm, I'm like. Of, of if if somebody like showed up and they were just like, if you could televise any moment in baseball history that's not already televised, mm-hmm. I mean, that'd be a bam. pretty good one. Like, yeah, bam. yeah. In the rain. Oh, in man. the rain. Yeah. Fred Astaire. Or, no, no, I fucked that up in another thing. It's not Fred Astaire. It's some know, other guy. I don't even know who Fred Astaire is. Keep He's going. the dancer. Uh, <laughs> Greenberg's signature... Oh, I read that part. By virtue of his memorable poke, the Tigers had the honor of facing the Chicago Cubs in the series. In a seven-game duel, Detroit won its second World Series title. Greenberg hit the team's only two home runs and paced the Tigers' attack with seven RBIs. Uh, The following season was a mixed bag for Greenberg. While he led the league in home runs with 44 and RBIs with 127, he also hit a career-low 277. Darn. Yeah, 373 on-base percentage. Too bad. Oh, what a shitty season. Oh, boo. Boo. At the age of... We're being sarcastic. At age 35, the Tigers felt that his better days were behind him. Greenberg couldn't argue the point as he spent much of the summer on the trainer's table tending to various aches and pains. Quote, I feel I'm on borrowed time. I don't have any, I don't have the old beans anymore out there. It's a weird way to put and it. And I'm right? not the hitter I used to be. He doesn't have the beans. Yeah, and now you're just above average, not great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In 1947, Greenberg and the Tigers had a lengthy salary dispute. When Greenberg decided to retire rather than play for less, Detroit sold his contract to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And then because of the motherfucking reserve clause, he had to go go there. Yeah. To persuade him not to retire. Well, he could have retired, I guess. I guess. uh, Pittsburgh made Greenberg the first baseball player to earn over $80,000. This is pretty good. Yeah. In a season as pure salary. Uh, Though the exact amount is a matter of some dispute. Team co-owner Bing Crosby recorded a song, Goodbye, Mr. Ball, Goodbye. Please tell Have me. Have you heard this song before? Oh, my God, no, please. It's like, and it, okay, I should add, it was recorded with Groucho Marx. Amazing. And it was made to uh, celebrate Greenberg's arrival in Detroit. I in mean, Pittsburgh. in uh, Pittsburgh. <laughs> so, this is, check that out. This is amazing. We've heard about those old-time dangerous pirates. Captain Kidd and Silver John along. But we prefer those modern dangerous pirates. As our victims of the flank, we sing this song. This is gonna be good. Goodbye, Mr. Ball, goodbye. You are gonna see another lot of sky. <laughs> Don't hang around for 
for Richard to open up that door when Hankus Pankus hits you where you've never been hit before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when Angus Pangus hits you, when you you've never been hit before, yeah. Oh, what a tune! That, what a ditty! That's yeah. I wish I could have like faded that out slowly, but yeah, uh, that was that was good. Yeah. So that so Bing Crosby makes him that song. You want to know what else they did? What the Pirates also reduced the size of Forbes Field, cavernous left field, renaming the section Greenberg's Gardens to accommodate Greenberg's pull hitting style. <laughs> there you go. We'll get all the families to come out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll just make a big beer garden right there. Yeah. Uh, the biggest beneficiary of Greenberg's move to the NL was young Pirate slugger Ralph Kiner. Kiner had led the circuit in home runs as a rookie, but he was still a raw talent, undisciplined at the plate. Upon joining the Pirates in spring training, Greenberg immediately took Kiner under his wing, teaching him the finer points of what it takes to be a consistent slugger in the major leagues. Quote, He was the most astute student of hitting I ever knew, Kiner remembered about Greenberg later. Kiner went on to a Hall of Fame career with 369 homers. Mm -hmm. Quote, Hank was the biggest influence on my life, he recalled. The biggest thing Hank taught me was that hard work is the most important thing. Greenberg played first base for the Pirates in 1947 and was one of the few opposing players to publicly welcome Jackie Robinson to the majors. Oh, good for him. Yeah. The Brooklyn Dodgers came into Pittsburgh for a series in May. Greenberg gave some heartfelt advice to the young African-American trailblazer. Quote, listen, I know it's plenty tough. You're a good ball player. However, and you'll do right. Just stay in there and fight back. Always remember to keep your head up. Fair enough. Yeah. As for Greenberg, he hit 25 home runs in 125 games in 1947 with an unspectacular 249 batting average. His league-leading 104 walks contributed to his fine 408 on-base percentage. Jeez. Two, who gives a fuck about the 249? Yeah. The Pirates were awful at 62 and 92. Well, that guy's only batting 249. Yeah, we are not family. Quote, at the end of the season that year, he couldn't wait to get out of Pittsburgh, Kiner noted. Quote, not the city, but the way the ball club was being run. There was no direction for the players, and we were at the bottom of the National League. Greenberg's final hit in the major leagues was a home run on September 15th in Pittsburgh off Philadelphia's Charlie Shands. Good, good for him. Yeah. And so, home run. Home run. Fucking bookends it with a home run. At a beat. Yeah. After retiring as a player, Greenberg hooked up with his best friend in baseball, Bill Veek. Oh, shit. I know. We need to look more into this. Oh, my God. No, Bill Veek has <laughs> been on the list for a long time. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, who at the time owned the Cleveland Indians. Greenberg became the team's general manager, helping to put together the nucleus of the team that won 111 games but lost the World Series in 1954, which you mentioned in the last episode. I did. But his marriage to Carol Gimble, whose family owned the New York department store of the same name, was turning sour. Come shop at Gimble's. Yeah. The two... <laughs> Divorce, Sean. The two had been husband and wife since 1946, but their paths seemed to diverge. Greenberg was a company man interested in the business of baseball, while Carol appreciated art and music and kept fine show horses. Oh, of course. She was a horse person. Yeah. The marriage benefited both financially, but there didn't seem to be much else there. 
Baseball's highest honor came to Greenberg in 1956 when he was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame along with Joe Cronin, the Red Sox all-star shortstop and manager. Quote, I've had many thrills in baseball, Greenberg told the Cooperstown crowd. This, though, is the greatest. Today, I have the same butterflies in my stomach that I used to have when I came to the plate with the bases full with Grove or Gomez or roughing pitching. When Veek sold his interest in the Indians and became the owner of the Chicago White Sox, Greenberg followed him, becoming a part owner and vice president. But his marriage continued to have problems, and by 1959, he and Carol were divorced. Together, they had three children, Glenn, also known as Little Hank, Steve, <laughs> Glenn, also known as Little <laughs> I love when they're just like, what are we naming this child? Uh, let's just go with that. We'll just rename him later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just write it down. <laughs> Steve and Alva, along with eight grandchildren. So there was probably a bunch of little, little Little Hanks. Hank Glenn got busy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Always an astute investor, Greenberg plunged into the stock market and made millions on Wall Street in the 60s. He sold his stake in the White Sox for a neat profit, left his Manhattan home for sunny Beverly Hills, and lived the life of Riley. I don't know what that means, but... (laughs) He 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 married... Sorry. <laughs> I guess it's a figure of speech. I don't know. I'm like, where did you get that he, from? Or were you just like writing a thought and you just didn't finish the sentence? No, no, no. He married Mary Jo Tarola, a minor movie actress, in 1966. In 1983, Greenberg made it back to Detroit for one of the few times since he'd been let go after the 1946 season. The occasion warranted it. The Tigers planned a ceremony at Tiger Stadium to retire his uniform number five, along with Charlie Geringer's number two. Both players were able to make it, smiling and waving to the large stadium crowd. It was the final time Greberg put in an appearance at the site of his greatest stories as a player. Quote, I am very proud, he told the throng, of the fact that my name and uniform number will be remembered as long as baseball is played in Detroit. On September 4th, 1986, Greenberg died after a lengthy battle with cancer. He's buried in Hillside Memorial Park in Los Angeles. Greenberg's is the classic American success story. With hard work, brains, and a little good fortune, a man can overcome his humble beginnings to be the master of his own destiny. Shirley Povich, the longtime sports columnist for the Washington Post, once wrote, quote, He was the perfect standard bearer for Jews. Hank was smart. He was proud. And he was big. <laughs> All right. I didn't. That's one way to end it. He yeah. was a great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he was well, a great was person. He was yeah. a great person. He was yeah. a fantastic person. That's a, that's a hell of a story. And I mean, man, I've, I've seen the statue, right? We've been to Detroit. We've, yep. we've seen the statues. And, and uh, I mean,. I knew a little bit of that. I did mm. not. Know. Yeah, I wanted to like. I kind of started with focusing on the thirty-eight season yeah. because of like the the, the, the controversy, controversy yeah, yeah, involved yeah. with it. And then I was like, like, we like we were see. talking about. There's, I felt like, I don't know if there's enough meat to yeah. to spread this to a full episode. So I obviously went into yeah, yeah, yeah. more yeah, of Greenberg's he, life in general. But well, I knew I knew he was one of the players that served during World War Two. 
but as I say, I, I, and I knew, I, I had no idea even even played for the Pirates. Mm-hmm. I was just like, hey, you played for the They're Detroit. just that one yeah. quick yeah. Yeah. blurb. That's why you don't know. Because yeah. they had to get him there with a song. <laughs> <laughs> and change the dimensions of the that field. That's a ridiculous, ridiculous song. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, that was a, that was a good one. Uh, yeah, do you want to get up, get the yeah. fuck out of this room because yeah, it's, it's really hot as fog in here. Hot. Like, uh, yeah, I'm Sean and I'm Ed, and we were doing baseball in this hot room. Yeah, and, all right. Uh, follow us on Twitter sure. at Doing Baseball. We're gonna try this again. Yeah, follow us on Twitter, Twitter at, at Doing Baseball, Doing Baseball, and Instagram at Doing Baseball. Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Give us a like or a comment or a, a rating, whatever. Screw you, people. I'm out of here. All right, bye, bye. bye.